This is The Guardian. Today, if airlines are taking the climate crisis so seriously, then why are so many of the planes they're flying empty? surreal moment in the UK a couple of weeks ago. It seemed like everybody was watching Big Jet TV. Oh, easy! Got to get it down soon, mate. Yeah! Nicely done! Freak weather brought winds gusting over 120 miles an hour to the UK, playing havoc with airplanes landing at Heathrow. All of it streamed online to hundreds of thousands of people watching on YouTube. It was pretty nail-biting, but it ended okay. Nobody was hurt, everyone landed safely. Thanks largely to the skills of pilots who, on each flight, hold the lives of hundreds of passengers in their hands. Except when those flights aren't carrying hundreds of passengers. Or sometimes, anyone at all. Those are called ghost flights. A ghost flight is a flight which has got no passengers or very few. We're talking about having fewer than 10% of the passengers on board. And obviously it doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it that these should fly, but lots of them do. Damien Carrington is The Guardian's environment editor and he's been on a ghost flight himself. It was pretty weird. It was about 20 years ago, I was in San Francisco and I was trying to get back to the UK for Christmas. There was literally nobody else in the cabin. I was in economy class, of course. It's a bit weird when they're doing the safety demo. You feel like you really have to pay attention because you're the only member of the audience. I also did get to lie across about four seats and sleep pretty much all the way back, so there was an upside to that. It's your own little private jet. (laughs) It was a very big private jet with lots of staff, and, you know, 20 years ago I wasn't thinking so much about the environment, but thinking about that now, it was pretty scandalous. Can I just pick up on one detail here? You had the plane pretty much to yourself and they still made you stay in the back? Uh, Yeah, yeah, that sort of probably tells you all you need to know about how scruffy I was when I turned up to the airport, I imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Flying across the Atlantic as the only passenger on a jumbo jet might sound luxurious and rare, but ghost flights are surprisingly common. There are tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of them. With the aviation industry already under fire as one of the world's fastest growing sources of carbon emissions, why on earth are they running so many empty flights? And why are they so reluctant to tell us the answer? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the mystery and environmental scandal of Britain's ghost flights. Damien, you've come a long way from that scruffy passenger 20 years ago. And as environment editor of The Guardian, I expect you don't fly as much as you used to. But how did the topic of ghost flights first get on your radar? 
There's been talk about it for a little while, but the thing that caught my eye was early in January, the boss of the German airline Lufthansa was warning that they were going to have to fly 18,000 unnecessary flights, as he called them, by March in order to fulfil what's called landing slot rules. And I thought, 18,000 flights that are unnecessary? That seems pretty crazy. So I started digging around. I was wondering what information was around and particularly what was available in the UK. And so what did you do? Who did you talk to? So I started, as you would, with the Department of Transport here in the UK and asked them if they could tell me how many ghost flights there had been. And they said they didn't hold the information, which struck me as somewhat odd, given that they set the rules for the aviation industry. But I went on next to the Civil Aviation Authority, the regulate part of the aviation industry, and collect quite a lot of data. Initially, they just didn't respond to me. So then I thought, right, I'll do a freedom of information request. So I sent that in. You have to twiddle your thumbs for 20 working days. And when that came back, the CAA said that I couldn't have the data that I'd asked for because the airlines which had supplied it to them hadn't given their permission for its release. So I thought, okay, who else? It turns out, actually, that the slot system is operated and run by a company called ACL. And then I gave them a call and had a chat with them because they also published some limited aggregated data. So they were very nice and friendly. But in the end, it turned out they didn't keep the kind of information I wanted either. They said, it's only the airlines that have got that information. So I felt like I might have hit a little bit of a dead end there, but you can sometimes get more information by parliamentary question. That's when an MP who's interested asks questions of a minister. The ministers have to answer. They don't necessarily have to answer fully. So I had some conversations around Westminster to see whether some of the MPs would be interested in looking into this issue. And as a result, some did lay some parliamentary questions for the minister. It's pretty incredible that as a journalist, you couldn't get a response to this. And in the end, it finally took an MP asking the question. What happened next? Transport Minister Robert Courts eventually came back with an actual answer with a spreadsheet attached. And what was the answer? Well, the answer was incomplete, let's put it that way. But it was certainly a whole lot better than nothing. Almost 15,000 ghost flights had departed from the UK to international destinations between March 20 and September 21. 15,000 virtually empty flights. That's incredible. I mean, how close to the reality do you think that number is? Well, it's got to be an underestimate of the total number, I think, because it didn't include any information on domestic flights, i.e. flights between airports in the UK. And it didn't talk about the flights that were coming into UK airports from abroad. So it seems like a pretty partial picture. And yeah, as you say, 15,000 flights that were virtually empty seems pretty crazy to me. You said the government released a spreadsheet as part of their answer on this. So did that give you any kind of breakdown on where exactly these ghost flights were leaving from in the UK? Well, Heathrow was the top that had about 5,000 ghost flights between March 2020 and September 2021. Manchester and Gatwick were the next highest after that, and Aberdeen was fourth, although they have quite a few flights out to the oil rigs in the North Sea. On average, there were 760 a month over that period. That's a crazy number of empty flights. Do we know what that picture looks like across the rest of Europe? 
Not really, but somebody had a stab at it. So in the European Union, Greenpeace made an estimate that it would be about 100,000 flights over this winter, which is obviously a very big number. They had to make quite a lot of assumptions there. It was based on the Lufthansa number, and they looked at what proportion of all the flights Lufthansa operate and then multiplied it up to 100%, assuming all the operators were in the same boat. So it's a pretty rough estimate, but on the other hand, we don't have any other information. And I doubt it's going to be wildly out. Damien, obviously the big question here is what on earth is going on? You said earlier the boss of Lufthansa had spoken about his company's concerns that unless they ran these flights, they would lose their airport slots. But that's even more confusing. What's going on here? Yeah, it is confusing. And the bottom line is that the system doesn't take into account the environment. But the detail here is that in normal times, at busy airports, there's pressure on landing slots and terminal time. And so airlines get allocated these slots by governments and organisations. But in order to retain those slots, they have to use at least 80% of them. So they have to fly 80% of the flights that they intended to in that slot at the airport and can only not fly 20%. And therefore that gives an incentive if the passenger numbers are really low for some reason to keep flying the planes even though hardly anybody's on them because these slots are very valuable. They change hands for many millions of pounds or euros. And the system is basically use it or lose it. If you're not flying your planes when you tell Heathrow you're going to, then they give it to someone else. That's right, yeah. You lose it and it would be reallocated to somebody else. And what's the point of this system? Is it to try to keep it somewhat fair, to make sure that there's not just cancelled flights all over the place? Yeah, I mean, it's been around for quite a long time. And it's, as you say, to ensure that people do fly these flights. I mean, the big airlines claim that it helps with competition in terms of providing an asset that can be traded from one company to another but a lot of the low budget airlines Ryanair in particular think the slot systems a scam and want to get rid of it completely. I can see why Ryanair might see it as a scam because it incentivizes airlines to fly their planes empty rather than cut prices to try to sell tickets and it also means fewer slots for a budget airline like Ryanair but the thing I don't get here like at all is when the pandemic hit and people stopped flying Are you saying those big airlines just kept on flying their planes without people on them, just to keep those slots from falling into the hands of their competitors? No, well, this is one of the strange things that during the pandemic, obviously, it was pretty catastrophic for passenger numbers. And in Europe and in the UK as well, the governments lifted those slot rules so that you no longer had to use 80% of the slots or you lost it. We want to make it easier for airlines to keep their airport slot, even if they do not operate flights in those slots because of the declining traffic. This is a temporary measure, and this temporary measure helps both our industry but it also helps our environment. That's the weird thing about the data that we got, is that these 15,000 ghost flights did not have to be flown in order to keep slots, which is normally the problem. So that was particularly puzzling. So if they weren't flying in order to keep their slots... I mean, why were they flying? 
That's a very good question, Michael, and again, one that is not easy to find an answer to. The minister in his response just said that it might happen for, quote, various reasons, and then the airlines just don't really want to talk about it a great deal. What the airlines did say to me was that during that pandemic period, and as it continued, some of them would have been repatriation flights, so they might have had pretty low passengers in one direction. It could be that Airlines need to shift planes around occasionally. You know, they haven't got a plane in the right place, so one moves from one place to another. But to be honest, it's not clear. And I think that in itself is a very unsatisfactory situation. It's quite a mystery, because as it stands, we've got 15,000 flights leaving the UK to fly internationally with nobody on them, and nobody will say why. That's about the long and the short of it, yeah. I think there's a lot more transparency needed in this area. I think people would be pretty shocked if they knew the full story. Okay, so you dug around to try to get to the bottom of this, and one of the people who had a theory was Michael O'Leary, the boss of the budget airline Ryanair. What did he say? Yeah, he dubbed Ryanair the Ghostbusters. O'Leary loves to be controversial, and his solution to the problem of ghost flights in order to retain these slots is to sell the seats as cheap as possible. He reckons you can fill the plane if you just keep dropping the ticket price. And I'm sure that's a good way to solve that problem. The problem that it doesn't solve is the environmental impact of aviation, because flying, certainly in Europe and the UK, is already incredibly cheap, and therefore you might solve one problem, but you haven't tackled the other. One thing that I'm struggling to put together here, and there's quite a lot I'm struggling to put together here, to be honest with you, is that it seems that if you take away passengers, you don't take away the incentive for airlines to fly. Like, it's still economically in their interest to fly passenger planes without passengers. How can that add up? (laughs) Well, that's exactly the question. Slots is a part of it because they're so valuable, but that doesn't apply to this data that we have from when the slot rules were suspended. But it's certainly true that jet fuel is unbelievably cheap. It's just not taxed at all. When you think about how much tax is usually put on gasoline or petrol that goes into cars, if you think about how expensive trains are in many countries, the aviation industry, by virtue of being an international industry, often manages manages to escape many of these things and so certainly the cost of aviation doesn't bear any resemblance to its environmental impacts and when it's so relatively cheap to fly these flights you end up in this perverse economic situation where it is worth flying these empty or near empty flights. Coming up, we don't know why airlines are flying ghost flights but we do know what it's costing the environment. Damien, let's talk about the environmental impact of this really weird ghost flight phenomenon. In general, how bad is air travel for the environment? Flying is probably the most carbon intensive thing that you could do at any particular moment in time in terms of adding CO2 into the atmosphere and because it happens at high altitudes there's additional effects which kind of double the impact of those emissions. So going from London to New York is about a tonne of CO2 per passenger on a full plane or a nearly full plane. I mean to put that in context there are 56 countries in the world where 
a person emits less carbon than that in the entire year of being alive wow. than just one flight backwards and forwards, you know. So it's super intense um, CO2 emissions. It's a very elite activity. Very few people fly and there are lots of very frequent flyers. But, you know, we're in a climate crisis and we have to be heading towards net zero in a few decades. And the aviation industry is just not anywhere close to being on track for that. And in terms of these ghost flights, you've told us that there's at least 15,000 leaving the UK to international destinations. Yeah. Is that a little, is that a lot, at least as a proportion of all the flights that come and go from the UK every day? It's probably going to be a relatively small proportion. But the thing I think that gets people is that it should be unnecessary. You shouldn't put this giant CO2 spewing machine into the air unless you really need to. There shouldn't be any of these. And it just seems incredibly tone deaf in an industry that has so much pressure on it to become more sustainable. Do you think that it suggests that the big airlines are kind of in denial as to the scale of the challenge ahead of them? Listen, in my view, the aviation industry is absolutely in denial about the scale of the challenge. So, for example, the UK aviation industry announced some carbon targets last year, which actually allow the emissions from planes to increase into the mid 2030s, which doesn't sound like the Mm. sort of thing you want to do in a climate emergency. And actually in October, the UN Secretary General savaged the climate plan of the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is like the global body, saying that their plans would be compatible with three degrees of global heating, which is catastrophic. You know, it's not the 1.5C that we need to limit it to. So in my view, absolutely, the aviation industry is completely in denial. And so what do airlines actually say, you know, in the face of everything we know about the climate emergency and their role in it? What do they say in response to all of that? They come up with plans and they include a lot of technology, right? And there's certainly good technology which we should look into. It could be electric planes on shorter flights, hydrogen power. Because it can pack more energy into a smaller space, hydrogen has recently overtaken electric batteries as the front runner in the race for cleaner flying. And the EU believes that by 2050, Hydrogen technologies could reduce the industry's carbon emissions by up to 75%. You could have more efficient flying planes. You could reform air traffic control systems so that flights are more direct. You could use something called sustainable aviation fuel, which is something created without making CO2. And a lot of their plans also rely on a lot of offsets, paying somebody else to absorb carbon, by growing a forest, for example. But the problem with the tech side of it is that it takes quite a long time to develop these things. Aviation's a really safety-critical industry, so it takes a long time to get these things approved for usage. And I don't really know any independent person who thinks that the trajectory of the change in technology is going to be nearly enough to maintain the growth in aviation, which the airline and other companies really want. So the other side, of course, is you limit or restrict demand. Just try and fly less. Okay, fly less. How do we actually make that happen? So in my view, there is one really neat idea, which is that you don't want to stop everybody from flying all the time or make it so expensive that only the very richest could ever step foot on a plane. But there's this idea where you have a kind of escalating tax. So your first flight, depending on what country you're in, you could get for free pretty much in terms of taxation. The next flight would have a bit of tax added to it. But then it starts to escalate quite quickly so that they become more and more expensive because actually the people who do the most emitting are flying, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a year. And so in terms of making the biggest impact, reducing demand, that might be a way to go. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. What else do people suggest? 
you can even look at tourism policies to try and encourage holidays that don't depend on air travel. Certainly here in Europe, the train system's kind of wonderful. But at the moment, it's quite expensive and can be quite complicated to arrange. And I think probably worth mentioning is that you also need to think about what might happen to the people who are currently employed in aviation who might not be employed in aviation if the industry failed to grow further or even shrank a bit. It's this idea of a fair transition. And so you said that this was something that airlines are not taking as seriously as they should, but there's more to the story, right? Like it's airports too, who are competing with each other to attract those airlines to use their runways and terminals. And in the UK, many of those airports are actually trying to expand and to start running even more flights. Exactly. I mean, like most commercial businesses, they think they have to grow and therefore they want new runways, they want new terminals. Heathrow still says it's going to build a third runway, although we'll see whether that happens. Leeds Bradford, they're looking to expand the capacity at that airport, despite the council having declared a climate emergency. So that looks like talking out of both sides of your mouth, as you might put it. Yeah, I mean, very much so. On the one hand, the UK and you know even these councils have pledged to reduce their emissions to net zero by 2050. But then on the other, they're approving the expansion of airports up and down the country. What gives? Does the government have a blind spot when it comes to aviation? I think it's always been problematic, politically speaking, because it's quite easy to scare people and say you won't be able to go on your annual summer holiday to Spain or Greece or France or wherever it is if you live in the UK. But, you know, we're getting to the crunch time. People have often talked about this decade as being the decisive decade when it comes to beating global heating. And therefore, we're really going to have to think hard about these things. There is an aviation strategy issue, so the time is right, and there are smart plans out there which could be thought through, but I'm not sure the government here in the UK at least is ready to go there. And so as these airlines seek to make more money and governments try to expand airports, are we going to see more airlines fighting to keep their slots, and so more of these ridiculous ghost flights with nobody on them? There's no reason to think as we return to some sort of normality that the situation is going to change very much because the slot system is still in place. At the moment, it's slightly reduced. It's 50-50, but it will be up to 70-30 by March. So the Commission expects that operated flights follow consumer demand and offer much-needed continued air connectivity to citizens. And as required, the protection of historic slots must be balanced with the need to ensure that airport capacity is used in a pro-competitive way for the benefit of all consumers. And as I say, until the environmental costs of flying are actually properly embedded into all parts of the aviation industry, I don't think we're going to see any change. And this abomination that our ghost flights will still be flying over our heads, I fear. You talked about the kind of wider aviation industry being broken, and this seems like a real symptom of it. But in terms of addressing ghost flights alone, surely this is something in which the government needs to step in and just say, enough is enough. You can't keep operating empty flights just to keep slots or for whatever other mystery reason they're doing. Is there any sign that the government is taking this particular problem seriously? Maybe. So the government certainly in the UK was interested in the idea of slot reform. But I think that was largely driven by the idea of trying to increase competition because owning a slot kind of locks it up for that airline. But at least there's a desire to take a look at it and maybe change it. And therefore, I think that concern around climate change is higher than it's ever been. And I'd be kind of mildly optimistic that when the aviation policy comes, there will be more focus on this. Yeah, I can see there's definitely more awareness of the absolutely dire climate emergency. But 
On the other hand, I wonder that as the pandemic eases, lots of people will be eager to get on a plane again after like two years at home. Yeah, well, we'll see what the new normal looks like. It may be that people have worked out that video calls are a pretty decent way to hold a business meeting rather than getting yourself jet lagged by flying through eight time zones for 24 hours. And in the meantime, this investigation of yours into ghost flights has left a lot of questions unanswered. How do you plan to get to the bottom of them? Well, you know what it takes, Michael. It's more digging. So I am continuing to do that in lots of different ways that I can think of in order to try and force a bit more data out into the open. Sometimes once you've got a bit, you can use that as a wedge to get into a bit more. But I certainly think in some of the opposition parties, they agree that it's pretty scandalous that ghost flights, which are this environmental crime, if you like, are not subject to public scrutiny. You know, nobody knows really when they're happening, how they're happening, why they're happening. And in terms of dealing with the climate crisis, it seems pretty clear to me that we should be looking very hard at these things and I will continue to do so. And good luck with it. Damien Carrington, thanks very much. Thanks, Michael. That was Damien Carrington. Many thanks to him. You can find his investigation into ghost flights at theguardian.com where you can also read our coverage of the most recent report from the IPCC, the world's leading climate scientists, on their assessment of the state of the climate emergency. It's pretty bleak, but they say there is still a window to avoid the worst effects of global heating. For more on Ukraine, do subscribe and listen to our sister podcast, Politics Weekly UK, with host John Harris, which is out today and every Thursday. If you like listening to The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland discussing US politics every Friday, you'll want to subscribe to his new podcast, as Johnny's show won't be available on Politics Weekly UK for much longer. It's called Politics Weekly America, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. So to get all the latest news from Washington and beyond, search for Politics Weekly America and hit subscribe. That's Politics Weekly America, out every Friday. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. The sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mithley Rao. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.